when your life is no longer your own? Well, that would be unless you're listening to The Film File. Yes, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meakin. And are you ready for another hour or so worth of film geekery? I bet you you are. Otherwise, why would you be here? Well, because I'm recording it. Oh well, that's okay. Oh yeah. Andy, <laughs> <how are you? laughs> uh, yeah. I'm in. I'm in good spirits. I'm very, very tired because once again it's been a working day for me, and then coming back and recording this. It has been a sad time at work this past week. Oh dear, I'm sorry to hear that. One of the managers who's been part of that building since it opened. He started there as a supervisor when it opened. What's almost six years ago. Um, right. He left the business this week uh, to move on to other pastures, and it was it was very very well loved by all the team. I, I thought from what you were going to say, he, he got buried in concrete. Yeah, we, we've left him there. We're not letting him leave. His uh, his feet are in concrete. He has to stand <laughs> on usher points all the time. Uh, now it, it was really sad because like it was really well loved by all the team there, and you know I've worked alongside him as a manager for all these years, and it just feels like a part of. A part of the Holy Trinity, as we called it, which was me, this guy, and Scott, who you know, uh, we were the Holy Trinity of the cinema. Um, yeah, it was it was a great. We had a great leaving night out for him. I was partying in, until the early hours of the morning, last man standing. I mean, that, the fact that it. I don't drink probably means that you know I can I have good. You staying can still power. stand. <laughs> yeah, but it was Thursday night after a long shift at work. I was still out until like three o'clock, half three in the morning uh, to say the goodbyes say. to him. And um, he'll be sorely missed. So, uh, yeah. yeah, so it, it was a very tearful goodbye. And Although we are going to see him because we're going to go out for drinks with him every now and then. It was amusing, though, because as the non-drinker, I did great at getting free drinks all night. Because I went into, there's a bar in Sheffield that is a like a Hawaiian kind of theme bar. Right. And I didn't realise that if you have a Hawaiian shirt, you get a free shot. Well, that was uh, surreptitious then. Well, yeah. I mean, I, th- here's this Hawaiian shirt that I bought just as a joke to weird, wear for Weird Al, but it's now become part of my personality. And so I'm just st- stood at the bar and like the barman just like puts a shot of a Hawaiian shirt, free shot. And I was like, oh, teetotaler, won't drink it. Passed it to one of my mates. And then we went into West Street Live because, hey, why not? And they do the spin the wheel thing when you're making order. And okay. twice when I spun the wheel, I got free drinks. So, yeah, it's great. When I wasn't a teetotaler, I never won any alcohol. Now that I'm a teetotaler, I'm getting it thrust upon me left, right and centre. So uh, if you ever want to go for a cheap night out, just go out with me. I'll buy a a Coke and get free drinks. (laughs) (laughs) Don't turn that into into a gambling obsession and you end up becoming part of the cast (laughs) of Casino, for instance. There's a film for a deep dive at some point. Eh? Oh, yeah, obviously. Yeah. I mean, we've done Goodfellas. We've not done Casino. Uh, anything Scorsese, yeah. We've, we've got uh, Raging Bull to talk about at some point. King of Comedy. Yes. Where, do, where do we start? Or, in fact, where would we end with it? I think we could just basically cover the next four years' worth of deep dives just by <laughs> going through Scorsese's catalogue. So um, while I, I wouldn't say it was good news, but it was reassuring news, I'd been working on a film script, which I'd finished, I sent it away to be professionally assessed, and uh, and even though this doesn't mean anything in in as far as the sale goes, it came back with some very positive feedback. And and nice. you know, it's you put your heart and soul into writing something, and then 
you look at it and then you think this is this is rubbish this is the worst thing that anybody could ever write ever and you reassess it and you reassess your life thinking i will never be a writer and then just to hear somebody come back and say you know this worked the hardest thing with a film script is getting it to work yeah because we are all kind of in a place where we know when we watch a movie whether it works or not from a from a structural point of view and it and it just felt like that you know it's once you get the structure down and it makes sense which can be from a writing point of view the, the hardest thing to put across so it was absolutely reassuring to be told that you're a good writer and that your work is uh work is is a has the potential to be a good movie mm. so long way to go on this particular journey yet but to get that first bit of feedback i got good you know i got a little bit of uh not criticism but but helpful feedback as well of stuff that i can yeah, improve on in the next feedback round. constructive yeah so uh, yeah. yeah it was just good it's it's the nice kind of emotional boost when you finish the script because you get very precious to it and sending it out into the big wide world it's like like your firstborn just just go yeah. Just go, go out now. It's time to go to college. My firstborn, my people. firstborn's never leaving. <laughs> <laughs> Do they know that? <laughs> I think he's just expecting that he's never going to leave, and he can just live under our feet for the rest of his life. Right. I'm going to change the locks one day. Confusing. <laughs> so, I won't uh, really. I love. I love all my children. Yes. <laughs> So yes, it was there was it was good news. I was going to say it as um, I love all my children equally, some more equally than others. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad they don't listen. Oh, they do. Okay, so we last week we set our socials challenge. Andy, how did we do? It was a Bruce Willis question, if I remember it was. correctly. We asked what is your, with the news that we gave about Bruce Willis like um, last week, and with we know that he stepped away from acting uh, because of his illness. What is your favourite Bruce Willis movie? Is it Die Hard or is there something else that he stood out for you? And we got, it shows the love for Bruce Willis out there. It's, we got a lot of replies. We'll start over with Twitter. Over on Twitter, we actually got a good chunk of replies from the old MTOS crowd. Right. And Dom Holder told us that I think he's brilliant in The Sixth Sense, but I also yes. think he's hugely underrated in Pulp Fiction. He seems to yep, be forgotten yep. amongst Travolta, yep. Jackson and Thurman. But for me, he gives the most controlled performance out of them all, um, which I... Well, well and truly agree with that. Yeah. With me, even when I watched Pulp Fiction, whilst everyone else was going on about Travolta and Jackson, I felt alone in loving what Willis had brought as Butch. And I like that section of the film more than the rest of it. It's such a great film anyway, but it's a controlled performance, like he says. Craig Wright told us, I think probably Unbreakable, Sixth Sense, Last Man Standing and Twelve Monkeys. And I'm glad there's some love for Last Man Standing out there because, again, that's a film that everyone kind of overlooked. I, and that love for me for um, Unbreakable. Uh, Unbreakable hit me hard when it came out. And, and that's why I was I was so disappointed with Glass. Uh, because yeah. I thought there was much more to be told. Not about that universe that, uh, that had been built, but about that character. I, th I, thought, I thought it was an, an, an absolutely brilliant. And again, uh, the word from our previous response, a good controlled performance. Yeah, it's, it's fairly like reined in. Lizabeth said, taking Die Hard out of the mix because it's top tier. He's excellent in yeah. Death Becomes Her, top comic timing, and also in Sixth Sense. Um, another one who said, taking Die Hard out of the mix is your next favourite movie, who also said, take Die Hard with a Vengeance out of the mix, because clearly both of those films are pinnacles. Yeah. My favourite of his is, again, Death Becomes Her. I love how straight he plays it compared to what Streep and Horn are doing. Fantastic stuff. 
Dennis Obi film, perhaps for me, Die Hard personally, but Pulp Fiction and 12 Monkeys, he gave really solid performances. You'll know that I mentioned 12 Monkeys last yes, week when absolutely. we raised the question. Uh, it, yeah, it's a great performance in that. Imran Sheikh gave us Die Hard and Blind Date are my favourite. I've not seen Blind Date. Uh, Blind Date was his, he made a couple of features before he really struck gold with Die Hard. Um, one, I think it was called Sunset, in which he played uh, a movie star opposite James Garner, who played um, Wyatt Earp, I believe. And it wasn't a particularly great movie. And then his other film uh, was Blind Date, which he played opposite uh, Kim Basinger. Uh, it was okay, and it wasn't a million miles away from his his moonlighting role. So uh, that was his first foray into movies. Hmm. But he didn't didn't strike gold really until until Die Hard. Carbuncle said, and this is brave of him. Hudson Hawk was a decent movie. I've got love for Hudson Hawk. Carl, I'm going to be having words with you at some point. <laughs> I know I know this guy, so um, I, I, he's a Canadian. I'm not going to hold it against him. No, I'm with you. I'm with you for Hudson Hawk. Okay. I'll, I'll leave you two to... You can share a room. Um, Nadine told us, not die hard, as I never really cared for this franchise. <sighs> Ooh, controversy. controversy It'll be Pulp Fiction and The Fifth Element for her. Uh, yeah, and yeah, I can't argue with either of them. Shep Geek said Unbreakable, so another one for Unbreakable. Very popular, that one. And Galactus said The Fifth Element is a dark horse, but Over the Hedge is our family favourites of Bruce. And yeah, I quite like that animated movie. I thought his voice yeah, 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 that was good fun. cracking. Good bit of fun. Over on The Old Mastodon, which is where I hang out more often, Bean, who's at Tech Bean, for pure entertainment value, obviously Die Hard. Otherwise, i got to go with 12 Monkeys. Lanero24, said The Fifth Element. Mev's Mats, Die Hard is definitely the most iconic one, but for yep. me, 12 Monkeys is on the same level. Also really liked him in Sin City, Looper, Unbreakable, or Death Wish. Looper's a good shout. Yep. Really good yeah, shout. We, we've got to mention Looper. Odathan, Unbreakable is up there. I understand, said, for me, it's Fifth Element and Sin City. Right. Julie, who's at Sardine Tin. The Sixth Sense, probably, but also Die Hard or the Fifth Element. And Giselle, The Sixth Sense, totally. And for Yippie Kai Anus, obviously Die Hard. A lot of popular ones in there. Fifth Element's got a lot of responses. Unbreakable seems to have got the most response on it. And a few for um, 12 Monkeys. A great range of films out there. Excellent. So where are we going to go with this week's Mastodon challenge or social Socials challenge. challenge. Social challenge. Our social stumper. <laughs> and I, I gave it a lot of thought and I and I came up. We talked about Ant Man last week and we talked about the rise of Kang the Conqueror. But who is your favourite on screen villain? Which villain is the most powerful or the most evil or the most sublime? Uh, the one who is capable of taking over the world? Is it a Marvel villain? Is it Thanos? Is it a DC villain? Is it the Joker? Is it a Bond villain? Blofeld. Who is your favourite on-screen villain? Okay, that's uh, that's going to take some thinking. The instinct wants to say Magneto. Okay. He's the perfect example of a villain that you can actually understand why he's doing what he is and what his motives were. And he's just got misguided. He's going the wrong way about it, but you can always understand it. But a lot of that comes from the comics anyway. Yeah. So I'll, I'll have to have a think about like any particular on-screen villains that have really stood out. I mean, you could go the T-1000. The Kurgan. You could go the Kurgan, yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's my answer. 
I'm staying there, Kurgan. <laughs> Sheriff of Nottingham from, from Robin Hood, Prince of, Prince Thieves. of Thieves. How about John Doe from Seven? Oh, yeah. How about Paul Blart, Mole Cop? How about not? <laughs> Nurse Ratchet. Yeah. Mm, there you go. Yeah, some so great who is your favourite on-screen villain of all time? You know what to do. I'll pop the question out on the socials. All you have to do is log on to one of the socials, find that question, post your response there, and you'll get a mention on the show. So what kind of a show do we have for you this week? Well, in this week's show, of course, we'll have the news and the box office. We've got a deep dive into Clint Eastwood's Million Dollar Baby. We've got reviews aplenty of Cocaine Bear, which landed at cinemas this week. Women Talking, which you can find at cinemas at the moment. And also, We Have a Ghost, which dropped on Netflix this weekend. And I'll be giving you my review of a film that landed on Netflix, Nocebo. But before any of that, we've got the news. And to start the news, let's go through the box office. So, has the Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania shrunk at the box office? Well, in the US, with a huge approximately 68% drop-off on last week, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania still holds the top spot for the weekend, but that significant drop-off doesn't bode well for the long-term business of the latest entry in the MCU. It took $32 million this weekend, taking the top spot. Cocaine Bear opened on $23.3 million in second place. Jesus Revolution is in third place with 15.9 million. Avatar The Way of Water, still within the top five, took another 4.9 million this weekend. And Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, refuses to let go of the box office top five in the US with another 4.1 million. Here in the UK, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania retains the top spot again for a second week. Again, a huge drop-off. It was down 66% on last weekend. It took just over 3 million this weekend in the UK. Puss in Boots, The Last Wish is in second place, 1.76 million, still going strong. Cocaine Bear came in in third place with 1.58 million. What's Love Got to Do With It opened in fourth place with just over 1 million. And Magic Mike's Last Dance in fifth place, taking another 470,000. It's pretty much coming to the end of its run now. I The one thing I am absolutely surprised about from Ant-Man and the Wasp is, is there's just no love for it. I, can, I understood why there was not, not much love for Eternals. I think Eternals was troubled. It had some high points. It looked great and it, and it, and it was different. But I was genuinely, as I know you were, genuinely mm. entertained by Quantumania. Yeah. I, just, I just don't get the hatred for it. I'm, I've seen much worse movies. Now, it's not a great movie, but it's so much better than Love and Thunder. I, I, just, I just don't understand why it's got a negative impact. I, I, I was just downright entertained. I just think everyone built it up in their heads that it'd be something huge than what it is. And they'd missed the point that this is the start of this phase. It's not the big climax of the villain. This is the introduction of the villain. But they were expecting Thanos going around smashing things kind of approach. And that's not what it was. It was no. supposed to be. I mean, yes, those of us who've watched Loki had already been introduced to Kang. But they've said all along with the TV shows aspects that they don't want it to be that you have to watch the TV shows in order to understand the films. And so Kang was kind of reintroduced in this. So this, I thought it was a great introduction for the character. Yeah. Yes, some of the effects was a bit ropey and there has been reports to say that um, there was a lot of pressure on them and they stole some of the effects teams away to finish off the Black Panther one. And this is where the spacing out of the Marvel releases will help because it'll yeah. mean that they'll avoid this ropey special effects. But it was paced well, it was structured well, and it was fun. Yeah, and what was more do you need from that? I genuinely had fun with it, genuinely entertained. 
Uh, and I just do not get the the lack of love for it. I, I honestly don't. I think, you know, uh, we, we talked about Love and Thunder, which we both thought was moderate. Talked about Doctor Strange. And I think I really enjoyed this much more than those two films. Yeah. But this one seems to have caught the ire of critics and the public. And uh, I just don't get it. Anyway, anyway, moving on. That's the box office. What have we got news-wise? So last Sunday, while we were recording, the BAFTAs played out. It did. Did you watch it? I caught the highlights. I particularly loved seeing Marcel the Shell on the red carpet. Yeah. Made that was cute as anything. I mean, uh, I, I, Mar- I, I spoke about Marcel last week, and if you've not watched it yet, just do yourself a favour and watch that film. What an interesting result. No one would have foreseen that All Quiet on the Western Front would be the big winner of that night. Didn't it just dominate? I mean, Netflix must be over the moon with that one. Seven awards for that. Elvis and Banshees of Inner Sheeran both did well as well, uh, with four awards each. Uh, But yeah, best film, All Quiet on the Western Front. Yeah. Did not foresee that one bit. Um, Outstanding British film, Banshees of Inner Sheeran. We've got a lot of love for that, and I can't disagree with that at all. There were some good contenders within there, like Empire of Light, Brian and Charles, good luck to you, Leo Grande, and After Sun. But Banshees was just such a a balanced film. Um, Leading actress, it's my personal favourite, Kate Blanchett for Tar. Yeah. I said in my review that that she's one of those actresses that you you stop seeing the star and you just see the character, and she became that character. And completely stood out. She was up against people like Viola Davis, who was always excellent as well. Anna de Armas in Blonde, who was the only good thing in Blonde. The rest of the film was a mess. Yeah, I would have been happy if Michelle Yeoh had won it. Which my money was on, to be perfectly honest. I think that Michelle Yeoh will get the Oscar on this one. But Kate Blanchett winning in the BAFTAs, yeah, that that's fine with me. Leading actor? I wouldn't have put my money on Austin Butler. Now, I, hey, I like Elvis. Uh, enjoyed it much more than I had any right to. Mm. I don't think it was an amazing film, but I, I was again thoroughly entertained. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, sometimes that's enough. However, Austin Butler was was great in it, but was he best actor? I mean, he was up against Brendan Fraser for The Whale, who I think was absolutely marvelous. Bill Nighy, who I've heard, I've not seen the film yet, Living, but everyone who's seen it says that Nighy is absolutely stunning in it. Colin Farrell at in Banshees of an Assurance. You know, there's some strong contenders in there. I'm not completely sold on Austin Butler. Yes, I, I don't truck with all these people who say he doesn't look like Elvis, so he's not good. I don't care. He kind of got the mannerisms right. He got the personality and be, kind of became Elvis during the film. But I don't think it was to the degree of being yes. the best actor. But hey, it's just opinions. No, I, I've got to agree. Supporting actress was another one for Banshees, Ke- Kerry Condon, who we've got a lot of strong love for. Um, I would have liked to have seen Hong Chow get that for The Whale because I think she's been magnificent. But I'm not going to complain about Kerry Condon getting it. Uh, supporting actor, again, Banshee's been a shivin, And it's a, it's the guy who we're championing to be everywhere from this point onwards, Barry yeah. Keegan. Uh, absolutely brilliant. And he was up against like some great names, including Brendan Gleeson from the same film as him. So that would have been a bit of a punch up at the end of the night, I reckon. Uh, the director. Now, this was another one for All Quiet on the Western Front. Yeah. Edward Berger. I'm, I'm not sh- I'm not sure, because you look at who's in the director in there. Banshees of Inner Sheeran's in there for Martin McDonough. Everything Everywhere All at Once, Daniel Kwan. Well, I thought the Daniels were, were the spot yeah. on choice for it for me. But, um, but you know, I did really enjoy All Quiet on the Western Front. It was a solid adaptation. It's really like lavishly produced. Okay, a fair enough win. Outstanding debut by a British writer, director or producer was After Sun. Not seen it yeah. yet. It is no, on the list to watch that, before next very week. Good things about it. Uh, film not in English language. Now, this was the dead cert for me. 
that All Quiet would get the film not in the English language. This is the one that I knew it would win. I wasn't wasn't expecting it to win all the others. It was up against some good films that I've seen pretty much all of them. But yeah, um, I can't disagree with it at all. Best documentary was um, Navalny, which you can catch on BBC iPlayer if you want to check it out. Well worth checking out. I, it's high on my list for the documentary award at the Oscars in a couple of weeks. I've not seen much of the documentary stuff this year. I've I've been ploughing through them. Uh, Fire of Love's a nice little joy as well. I'd have been happy if that had got documentary, but Navalny is a really, really good documentary and very relevant to the times that we're living in. Uh, animated film? Oh. You were happy. I thought of you as soon as I saw that result. I, just I thought, was taught. Oh. I'd have been happy with any of these, to be honest with you, but I have been championing Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio because I love the craftsmanship that went into that. Yeah. And so he well-deserved. It's such a great stop-motion film. Marcel Lachelle, of course, is closer to my heart, but the craftsmanship that went into Pinocchio is what makes it deserve this. Original screenplay was another one for Banshees. Great screenplay. Yeah. Really is a good screenplay. Adapted screenplay was All Quiet on the Western Front. Original score, All Quiet on the Western Front. I don't know. I, th- I think I think I love the score in Babylon a lot more. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it amazed me. I mean, All Quiet on the Western Front is a fantastic piece of filmmaking. Whether and and it, uh, it's a, it's a personal opinion, of course. Whether it deserved all of those plaudits, the mm. runaway plaudits for it, I don't know. Usually, with the Baftas, they do kind of get behind potentially some of the underdogs. Yeah, uh, casting went to Elvis. Um, yeah. It has got a good ensemble cast in there. Can't really disagree with it. Would have liked to have seen Everything Everywhere all at once pick up on there because I think everyone's shone within that film. But I think Elvis kind of deserves it. Uh, cinematography. I mean, we all expected Deakins to get this, so I was quite surprised that All Quiet on the Western Front got it instead. Uh, Deakins made Empire of Light look amazing. But like I said, when I reviewed All Quiet, I watched it on Netflix. And one of the things that I said is I wished I could have seen this on the big screen. And that's because the cinematography is so good in it. And now that we've been showing it over this past week at the cinema, I've popped my head in a few times and boy, it looks lavish on the big screen. Good. Costume design, Elvis. I could kind of see that. Yeah, no, no, that makes sense for me. I think it is, it's, it's audacity in that film is its editing style and its mm. costume and its art direction. Uh, yeah. it's, it's very much an aesthetics film. I think there's, there's a lot wrong with it. And nothing that that is a, a an open critique about it, because I, I just said I had a, a much better time than I expected to it. And those are what I would have expected from the BAFTAs for this film. I think Babylon could have been a strong contender in that category for similar reasons. Yeah. Um, yeah. But Elvish, yeah, it, it works. Editing, everything, everywhere, all at once, very much deserved. The editing in that really does enhance the film. Production design, Babylon, yep, can't disagree with that. Uh-huh. Uh, the BAFTA Rising Star Award this year, which is voted for by the public, went to Emma McKee. Makeup and her, Elvis, of course. Right. Uh, sound, all quiet on the Western Front. It has got a really complex and really detailed sound mix in that, so I can see that. Special visual effects. Come on, it's the, it's the only award that Avatar deserves to pick up, really, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> we'll let them have that one. If Avatar wins anything else other than that in any awards, then there's something wrong. Uh, And then there's just the short films, which uh, The Boy, The Mole, The Fox and The Horse was the winner of the British short animation. Whether that will drop a hint to what the Oscar for short animation is going to go to, because it's a charming, very simple style of animation. We'll have to wait and see until the Oscars. But all in all, it was a it was a 
quite an int- getting such like amount of wins for something as left fielders or quiet on the Western Front shows that BAFTAs is kind of like moving around a bit and like trying to not playing safe, shall we say? Yeah, they've always had that that ability to have a slight edge uh, and to go out on their own, which doesn't resemble the Golden Globes or the Critics Awards. It, it is its own thing. And I've always liked that about the BAFTAs. And of course, they'll always support films which have got some kind of a British element to it as well. I know that there has been some commentary and criticism online with regards the lack of diversity across the awards. What annoys me about that, and I get that there's not a lot of diversity with the winners, but what gets me about this is they're basically saying that they should have like re- should have awarded someone like Viola Davis over Kate Blanchett, but Kate Blanchett gave a better performance. Yeah. And everyone who's been challenged on that, so you do not think Kate Blanchett deserved it? Oh, no, she deserved the leading actress. It was like, well, what are you saying here? You're saying she deserved it, but they should have given it to someone else just to get diversity. Surely it should always just be the best person got it on the night. Absolutely, absolutely. Like I said, Viola Davis was an absolutely powerful force in The Woman King. I love that film. But Kate Blanchett is my top tip. Yeah. Uh, my top tip for the Oscars as well. Although, like I said, maybe Michelle Yeoh. Yeah, we shall see. It's only we should a see. few short weeks away. Yeah, two weeks away. So let's move on to some roundup of what's happening in the world of news and greenlit stuff and castings. So let's start with some DC news, shall we? Okay, do we have DC news? Uh, we've got a bit of DC news. Uh, you'll know that there was a series order handed out for DC Comics' adaptation of Dead Boy Detectives. Yeah. That HBO Max was going to be working on. Well, HBO Max has now sold it off to Netflix. I'd heard about this ages ago. And it wasn't official. I heard it from one of my special contacts out there in film world, and I'd uh, um, I'd heard that it was going to Netflix. I'm looking forward to it. I'm a big fan of Neil Gaiman stuff, and especially the Sandman universe. And uh, yeah. I, I've not read any of the books, but I'm interested to see where it goes. With uh, and I'm glad that uh, I'm glad these projects that look to be dead at HBR are still getting shopped around. I'm looking at you, yeah. the uh, uh, the Batman one animated series but if we see how netflix have adapted the other gaming properties the sandman hopefully we'll get a similar tone for those who don't know what dead boy detectives is the series is dubbed a fresh take on a ghost story that explores loss grief and death through the lens of two dead british teenagers edwin payne and charles roiland and their very alive friend crystal palace flight attendant creator steve yockey has adapted the gaming and wagner's comic and he's serving as showrunner on the series, which will be produced by Warner Brothers TV, and Netflix will be footing the bill. Yeah, I'll, I'm keeping my eye out for this because I do love anything with Neil Gaiman's name attached. Um, quite excited for that. Sticking with DC, kind of, because it's it's only rumouring at the moment, but the Aquaman sequel has apparently been getting very negative preview audiences uh, reviews on this Um Apparently, it's going to take an awful lot of work to get it into shape to be anything other than below average at this moment in time. Apparently, the relationships don't work. The story is a mess. Uh, Humor-wise, it's a mess. Uh, That's what I'm hearing. Whether that's true or not, I guess we'll wait and see because it doesn't get released until later this year, which kind of means they have that opportunity to spend an awful lot of time on it. Fingers crossed on that one, because I enjoyed the first Aquaman. Yeah, I was I don't indifferent. Want to damage this I one. was indifferent, as you know. Al Pacino, Vince Vaughn, and Michelle Monaghan 
are starring together in Easy's Waltz. Though his days as the boss of True Detective are behind him, sadly. Nick Pizzolato uh, is focusing on his directorial debut with Easy's Waltz. And as I said, he snagged uh, those three big stars. He's written the script. The film follows a down-on-his-look comedian crooner navigating through modern Las Vegas with old-school Vegas personalities. It sounds right up my street. A kind of mix between Swingers and A Star is Born, from what I've heard. I like the sound of that. I, I like anything Vegas set. I'm a sucker for a Vegas set film. Um, I, I, I liked Vince Vaughn. I do like Vince Vaughn, but I liked him when he did season two of uh, True Detective. I thought he gave it... A yeah. fantastic performance. Especially after his many years of just delivering pretty much bland yeah. shticks. He rarely showcased why he was such a big thing when he first hit the scene way back in Swingers days. Yeah. You remember a couple of years ago when My Spy came out, the Dave Batista? Yeah, it was it, it was it was pleasant enough. Past an hour and a half. Yeah. Um well My Spy 2 is going ahead. It's called My Spy the Eternal City. And comedy veterans Anna Farris, Craig Robinson, and Fluella Borg are all set to join the cast alongside Dave Batista returning to his role. Get Smart Helmer, Pete Segal, is returning to direct again, and John and Eric Hober are writing the sequel. It will reunite Batista with his former co-stars, Chloe Coleman, Kristen Schaal, and Ken Yong. In this sequel, the now teenage Sophie convinces Batista's character, JJ, to chaperone her school choir's trip to Italy. But they both unwittingly end up pawns in an international terrorist plot targeting CIA chief David Kim because it happens, and his son, Colin, who's also Sophie's best friend. I enjoyed My Spy. I, I think Dave Bautista showed some great comic timing and yeah. some, yeah, it, it's showing such a diverse range now. And it's just a great, enjoyable family film. Uh, you mentioned that you are looking forward to the Oscars and hoping that Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is going to be the success there. But at the moment, he's currently working on another stop motion project, and that is an adaptation of The Buried Giant. Do you know this one, Andy? I've not read the novel, but I had read this news. Um, it's Netflix teaming up with Del Toro again. I know that the story of The Buried Giant by Kazuo Ishiguro follows an elderly Briton couple named Axel and Beatrice who live in a fictional post-Arthurian England in which no one is able to retain long-term memories. Similar to Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, Shadow Machine's stop-motion studio is going to be the production's home base. Del Toro has said in a statement, The Buried Giant continues my animation partnership with Netflix and our pursuit of stop-motion as a medium to tell complex stories and build limitless worlds. It's a great honour and a great responsibility for me to direct this screenplay, which Dennis Kelly and I are adapting from the profound and imaginative novel. Del Toro, stop-motion animation, top of my list. Over to Marvel. Now, I'm sure this is old news because I'm pretty sure we either mentioned this or speculated it quite a while back. But the fake stage musical, Rogers the Musical, that we saw oh, in yeah. Hawkeye, is becoming a real thing. I'm not surprised. It, it was warmly embraced. The news of this broke when Marvel this week re released a teaser video of a Peggy Carter-esque dressed woman in front of Disneyland California Adventure Park's Hyperion Theatre holding up a programme booklet with Rogers the Musical on the cover. The video is captioned, a timeless story of a timeless hero. A short one-act musical is coming for a limited time this summer to Disney California Adventure Park. Stay tuned for more details. So if you're going over to California and you're going to Disney this summer, you can go to see Rogers the Musical. And that makes me want to book a flight 
to head over to Disney California Adventure Park this summer. So We should let them know that we're coming. You pick a date, we're going. We initially speculated that this would happen. And we speculated maybe they'll do it as a short for Disney Plus, etc. No, they're going for the theatre thing. But I won't be surprised if they do like what was done with Hamilton, where they record it and then release it onto streaming at some point. Awesome. Uh, Sticking with Marvel, Stephen Ewan has joined Thunderbolts. His role is unspecified, but it's said to be significant and will continue after Thunderbolts finishes. So start those speculations now. For those who don't know what Thunderbolts is, it's Marvel's Suicide Squad. It yeah. sees anti, anti-heroes and rogue agents sent on government dark ops missions. The cast of the Thunderbolts includes Sebastian Stan as Bucky Barnes, David Harbour as Red Guardian, Wyatt Russell as John Walker, Hannah John Kamen as the Ghost, Olga Kurilenko as Taskmaster, Julia Louis-Dreyfus as Contessa Valentina Allegra de Fontaine, and Harrison Ford, who's going through such a renaissance, playing General Thaddeus E. Thunderbolt Ross, replacing the late, great William Hurt. I'm excited for Thunderbolts. Hopefully this series is going to um, really tick all the boxes for me. Sticking with Marvel, the weekend of photograph director Stella Meggie is set to direct episodes of the Marvel Studio series Wonder Man, which will star okay. the great Yahar Abdul-Mateen II as an industrialist scion who gains ion-based superpowers. Meggie's expected to helm multiple episodes for the series, along with Daniel Destin Cretton, who will also direct multiple episodes and executive produced. And... In less concrete scheduling news, a new report from Insider KC Walsh via the Direct indicates that Shang-Chi and the Eternal sequels have been added to the Marvel Studios production calendar. And we should start to hear them in the next update on the plans for the next few years. We will see them laid out into that web. I mean, Shang-Chi did very well, both review-wise and box office-wise. So I'm not surprised there. Eternals, I'm I'm dubious. I've, I've got to be honest I'm, I'm not completely sold that eternals will make it onto there or it might make a move to tv who knows but i think there's a lot more story to tell in the eternals well i know there's a lot more story yeah, yeah. to tell in the eternals and it's into that if they ever want to like go to where the comics are going at the moment they are key and significant to the future of the marvel universe but whether it's going to get big screen another matter and on the other marvel i.e sony uh, tom hardy has confirmed that despite all our protests Pre-production is underway <laughs> on the third Venom movie. He's took to Instagram to confirm the news, along with showing off a deleted scene from the first movie. You you just keep trying to sell this nonsense, and the sad thing is, some people will turn up for it. Hey, we must be time for a, a, a Craven the, the Hunter teaser at this point. You'd think. I can't wait for that to land. Shall we move on? What I genuinely can't wait to land, and it's landing this week, and that's season three of Mandalorian. Yes, looking forward to it. And for those who are wondering how many more seasons of Mandalorian there's going to be, well, Jon Favreau has revealed on the Total Film podcast this week that he doesn't know. They're going to keep it going for as long as he feels that it can go for. In his words, I think the beauty of this is that it's a middle chapter of a much larger story. And though we'll have resolution over time with these characters, I think that how these characters fit into the larger scope and scale. But it's not like there's a finale that we're building to that I have in mind. Quite the contrary. I'd love for these stories to go on and on. And so these characters potentially could be with us for a while. And I really love telling stories in their voice. And I love the way the adventures unfold. And I'm looking forward to doing much more. So it's one of them that as long as Mandalorian stays popular, expect it to keep going for years and years and years. And as long as they keep the quality. I mean, let's be honest. Mandalorian coming into Book of Boba Fett was the only thing that made us stick around for the back end of Book of Boba Fett. Absolutely. We all love Mando and we all love Grogu. I'm happy to see that journey go on. Hopefully, they'll get to a point that if it does start to diminish, they'll realise now it's time to wrap it all up. But 
it sounds like he's got a lot of stories to tell. Hey, Andy, cast your mind back to 2013, 10 years ago. You wow. might remember that Steven Spielberg was looking to bring another of Stanley Kubrick's unmade projects yes. to the big screen following his work on AI. Anyway, the deceased filmmaker's passion project, as, as most film geeks would know, is Napoleon. Uh, Spielberg was, envisage, was envisaging Spielberg was envisaging a miniseries for HBO rather than a, a movie, but it appears that it's finally moving forward. Napoleon is quite possibly the most famous unfinished film in Kubrick's archive. He wrote the script in 1961, plowed through years of research and gathering thousands upon location photos, slides, pages and notes. But MGM and United Artists, which were to have produced the eventual, film, uh, eventual movie, refused due to the high cost and fears that a big period war epics failed to make their budgets back. And Kubrick held on to the idea right in numerous drafts, but never managed to get it made. And there's a, a book by Alison Castle who wrote about Kubrick's quest to get this made. True Detectives, Carrie Joji Fukunaga and David Auburn were also linked to the adaptation several years ago. Spielberg has been speaking at the Berlin Film Festival this week and has said that with the, with the cooperation of Christian Kubrick and Jan Harlan, we're mounting a large production for HBO based on Stanley's original script, Napoleon. We're working on Napoleon as a seven-part limited series. And a perfect way, really, to be handed down from one legacy filmmaker to our current legacy filmmaker. Take this news with a huge pinch of salt, because the original source is <coughs> giant freaking robots, and you know what my thoughts are on them. However, given the success of HBO are having with one game adaptation at the moment, The Last of Us, and the fact that Warner Brothers hold the rights to the Potter license, and we know that Zaslav is keen to tap into it, there's reports that Hogwarts Legacy, the game that's recently been released, is being developed as a film. Now, the game is set in the 1800s, and it sees players take the role of a student at early Hogwarts with the ability to tap into ancient magic. And the game's been a huge success. It sold 12 million copies in just two weeks, despite criticisms and boycotts from many over J.K. Rowling's transphobic stance of recent years. We know that Zaslav has, set, has said just before Christmas that they want to expand out the world of Harry Potter. They've got a great franchise there that they can draw upon. And we know that they want to move away from the Fantastic Beasts, which hasn't been performing for them. Yes, Giant Freak and Robot just throw a lot of things at the wall and see what sticks. But yeah. this could be one that they speculated correctly. So, like I say, pinch of salt, but it's one that seems to have some foundation in what we've heard elsewhere anyway. Uh, Lord of the Rings, Warner's mm. A New Line have revealed new plans to return to the world of Tolkien's Middle-earth for some new films. So we've got the series at Amazon still. Yes, is the world ready for more Tolkien films? Warner's a new line clearly think so, and they've closed a multi-year deal with game studio Embracer Group, who previously acquired the rights to the material in the form of film, games, merchandise, theme parks and live productions. The new films, they've confirmed, will not be remakes of Jackson's trilogy. So ignore all the people online saying, how dare they remake this? They're not remaking anything. It's going to draw from extended Lord of Middle-earth, the same with the way that Amazon's Rings of Powers has, to tell new tales. But we don't know as of yet where it'll go. But what we do know is that Peter Jackson and his writing partners, Fran Walsh and Philippa Boyens, are open to involvement. And they've said in a statement, Warner Brothers and Embracer have kept us in the loop every step of the way. We look forward to speaking with them further to hear their vision for the franchise moving forward. So it's quite possible that it could be directly linked in with Jackson's creations. Well, at least for the first three. We still try not to talk about The Hobbit too much. Uh, your favourite man crush is about to start on a 
potential new film. At the moment, he's prepping to play Deadpool again. But after that's finished, uh, and after he's done uh, watching Wrexham play football, Ryan Reynolds <laughs> is busy developing other movies. Yes, he's teaming up with his recent frequent collaborator and filmmaker, Sean Levy, to set up a feature comedy called Boy Band. Reynolds is attached to star and produce this project, which he co-wrote with Jesse Andrews, who gave us Me, Earl and the Dying Girl and Luca. And the project is being eyed as a potential directing vehicle for Stranger Things producer Levy as well. If so, it will be the fourth film together following Free Guy, The Adam Project and the upcoming Deadpool movie. Full details are under wraps, but what we do know, it has been described as a comedy about a boy band reunion. Aging boy band members trying to get back together. You know, like New Kids on the Block did a few years ago? That kind of thing, but with a comedy approach. So just like what New Kids on the Block did a few years ago, I'm there for it. Combination of Levy and Reynolds over recent years. All of those films that they've worked together on, I love. So I'm well and truly involved with this. Now, you remember last week when I spoke about the two giant spider movies? Yes, uh, and you are a big fan of the giant spider movie. Uh, Maybe we should do a deep dive one day of Tarantula, because that is the master of all giant spider movies. Well, another one that I'd like to do a deep dive on is Arachnophobia. But I might wait until news of this actually comes to fruition. So Happy Death Day and freaky filmmaker Christopher Landon has returned with the new Netflix film that I'm going to review later, We Have a Ghost. But he's also confirmed that he's planning an Arachnophobia remake. He's said to discussing film, I'm hoping it should be my next film. We're getting super close. The script's done. I've been working on that for a while now. So it's really just about getting it together. I met a spider wrangler the other day, so that's a good sign. I mean, I don't really just met him on a bus. <laughs> but um, what he brings to like the comedy horror approach as well with Happy Death Day and Freaky, he clearly loves his horror and he clearly loves his B-movies. And I think if, if you're going to have anyone remake Arachnophobia, Landon's the man. So uh, sign me up for this one. Quick news, my big fat Greek Raiden 3 has now got a September the 8th global release date. Uh, I completely forgot that there was a second film, to I'll be honest with you. That. I'm sure that out there, there's at least five women who still cared about that franchise. Paul Thomas Anderson, who gave us great films such as Licorice Pizza, There Will Be Blood, etc. is planning his next upcoming film, which is rumoured to be centred around the current Republican Party and is looking to cast an actor as Marjorie Taylor Greene. In addition, Leonardo DiCaprio is rumoured to be in talks to star. And Momentum Pictures has scored the domestic rights to the political mockumentary feature Maximum Truth, which stars Ike Barinholtz and Dylan O'Brien. This film will score the release this autumn in theatres and online. The film is about a documentary crew following a shameless political grifter named Rick Klingman as he teams up with fellow operative named Simon to take down a rival congressional candidate. It sounds like it couldn't happen in the real world. Pretty sure it would. (laughs) Um, That's it from the news, but sadly we've got some losses that we we have to mention. First up, I'm going to mention uh, the passing of Richard Belzer. Now, Unless you were a massive fan of Barry Levinson's Homicide Life on the Streets, the deadpan comedian was featured in Saturday Night Live. Uh, He was in such movies as Fame, Night Shift, Fletch Lives, Bonfire of the Vanities, Man on the Moon. He appeared in The X-Files, The Wire, 30 Rock and American Dad, but most people would recognise him from Law and Order. He was an amazing stand-up comedian and was a passionate conspiracy theorists and he passed away this week at the age of 78 i'm surprised you didn't mention that he starred in species too i mean he was he was quality u.s president in that <laughs> um but yeah he was very prominent through to his through his law and order work the character that he played on law and order was the exact same character that he also popped up in x files the beat 
Arrested Development. He played this same character across other properties, sometimes for jokey effects, Arrested Development, or sometimes for seriousness. One of those actors that you might not re- recognize the name, but as soon as you see the face, you've seen him in so many places. Absolutely. Uh, sad loss. And also this week, now it's not a passing, but actor Tom Sizemore, who you might know from films such as Heat, Saving Private Ryan, and much, much more, has been hospitalized following a brain aneurysm, according to his spokesperson. Oh, that's sad. Currently in critical condition, the 61-year-old Sizemore was found unconscious at his Los Angeles home last Sunday at around 2 a.m. He'd collapsed following the medical emergency. He was transported to an L.A. hospital where he's under observation in critical condition. And Sizemore's rep tells the outlet he's currently in critical condition. It's wait and see. In addition, his family are aware and waiting for updates. There's been no further updates in the past couple of days, but we do hope he has a strong recovery because, you know, he's worked with Oliver Stone on Born in the Fourth of July, Natural Born Killers, yeah, Tony absolutely. Scott, True Romance, Enemy of the State. He was in Wyatt Earp, Dreamcatcher, Point Break, Strange Days. This guy has been prominent in many films that will have either already been in our deep dives or are already on our list for deep dives. Yeah, A great actor. We hope he pulls through this. We'll give you more news once we know. And that's this week's The News. So you're listening to The Film File, your favourite film podcast. But, and why not, have you not signed up for The Film File on your favourite podcast platform? We know who you are. Yes, we can tell who you are. And we'll invade your nightmares. Andy, how can they find us? You can find us on pretty much any podcast platform, all your favourite ones out there, Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts. If you're on a Samsung phone, swipe to the side, go into the Samsung free, search for Film File. You'll be on on our phone as well. We're everywhere. You can find us on Audible. You can find us on iTunes. We are basically dominating the world. Uh, If you want to find us, we're on all your socials and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Mastodon, Instagram. Just search for Film File UK. We'll pop up on there. We're not active fully on everything, but we do check in just to see what the commentary is. And you can answer our questions, particularly through Facebook, Twitter or Mastodon. Just get in touch. You can also get in touch with us directly if you want. If you don't like like to do that social network thing, podcast at filmfile.uk. Send us your email over there. Or if there's any film that you want us to deep dive or look at, that's the place to get in touch with us. And you can find us on No Barriers Radio every week, every Thursday at 8 o'clock. That's nobarriersradio.com. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. And this week's Deep Dive is the 2004 film Million Dollar Baby. Directed by Clint Eastwood, written by Paul Haggis. And he stars Clint Eastwood, Hilary Swank, and Morgan Freeman. I'm going to teach you how to fight. And don't come crying to me if you get hurt. I teach you all you need to know, and then you go off and you make a million dollars. It's all I ask. All righty. We got a deal. This Oscar-winning story 
is the story of Frankie, an ill-tempered, crotchety old boxing coach who reluctantly agrees to train an aspiring girl boxer, Maggie. He's impressed with her determination and her talent, and he helps her to become the best. But the two form a very close father and daughter bond. It was based on the 2005 collection Rope Burn Stories from the Corner by FX Tool, the pen name of fight manager and cut man Jerry Boyd. And this film received huge critical acclaim and grossed $216.8 million worldwide. The film garnered seven nominations at the 77th Academy Awards, one for, one for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress for Swank, and Best Supporting Actor for Freeman. The main thing I'm going to say about this film is I can't believe it came out in 2004. Yeah, 2004. It doesn't feel that old a film either. It doesn't feel that long ago that I was first seeing this on the big screen. Yeah. And this was a film that surprised me on the big screen because all the marketing and promotion, it seemed to suggest it was going to be a female Rocky. It was going to yes. be a, a you know person from the streets, rags to riches, Rocky-esque tale. And whilst it kind of starts that way, albeit a little less pumped up and slower paced, a gentler pace, as we're introduced to Eastwood's Frankie Dunn, the boxing trainer with the gruff manner, and Hilary Swank's Mary Margaret Fitzgerald, the aspiring boxer from a run-down, poverty-stricken background who Frankie's reluctant to train. Over that first two acts, and via the excellent... I mean, Morgan Freeman can voice over anything as far as I'm concerned, because yeah. his voiceover on this is marvellous. We find out about the family issues of both Frankie and Maggie, and we see the pair slowly bond. And then the film takes a very, very strong turn for the final act in a moment that, on first watch, was utterly shocking. And it still hit hard on my repeated viewings over the right. years. And on the recent one this week, it still stuns me how it tonally shifts, but feels right to do that complete tonal shift for the last act of the film. The final act of the film's gears change entirely. The emotional weight lands heavy. It presents a very dark ending to the film, which was quite light for the first part of it. I think this is one of the later Clint Eastwood movies, probably his best one. I think his performance proved that he could be a fantastic uh, dramatic character actor. And I would like to have seen more in this style from Eastwood. After this film, there wasn't much to hold on to. And his films became almost parodies of who Clint Eastwood is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean... After this, Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima came out two years later. But aside from them, he moved into things like Gran Torino, which played on... Yeah, I like Gran, uh, Gran Torino. But it... Great film, but played on him. He did like J. Edgar, Hereafter, Jersey Boys, American Sniper. And then he just became more and more political yes. in his latter years. But, you know, Million Dollar Baby followed like Mystic River that came out the year before. And those two films together are the cracking double bill to showcase what Eastwood was actually capable of. There's there's a certain style, and that's the lack of style, to Clint Eastwood's films. He shoots it as, as you would see it. It's always assured, uh, and he has uh, as a way of, of getting very naturalistic performances out of his, his leading actors. Uh, and we saw that with Unforgiven, for instance. Uh, and he gets a fantastic performance for Hilary Swank uh, and, of course, for Morgan Freeman, which goes without saying. And I think with the story, he, he finds something that is genuinely, genuinely moving uh, and, and deeply heartfelt. And as you say, that last act goes in a direction of, of what this film is really all about, which is about the love between a, a father and a daughter. 
rather than again as you point out um a, a female rocky and this is just a pure and simple beautifully stated story i wouldn't even call it a, a sports movie that sort of undermines it and it works on, on perhaps something much more than that much more much more heartfelt the people who say that this is a film about boxing it's not boxing is a part of the film but it's not the core essence yeah. of the film the core essence is that relationship it is these two lost souls who kind of come together because they've got no one else hillary swank's character's family have no care for her they dismiss her they disregard her she's not got that central figure who believes in her and Frankie doesn't want to believe in her, but slowly starts to see the potential and be becomes the mentor that she's needed throughout her whole life. This is a film about chasing the American dream, but finding out that the American dream isn't the important thing. It's the people that you share your time with. That's the important thing. And I need to give some props out to the cinematography by Tom Stern in this, because on my watch this week, I realized how beautiful his use of shadow is in this. There's some dialogue yeah. scenes where they're, they're mostly cast in shadow and you only see partial faces and they are so beautiful and they draw your attention so well into it. You just have to look at the poster for this film to see how it uses shadow and light to realise that that's what it's about. It's about draw you in through that intensity and the intimacy that a well-lit scene can do. Too much lighting would have spoiled this, but being so dark really makes you latch into the characters really makes you pull yourself in tom stern's cinematography throughout this film is absolutely beautiful the film won lots of critical plaudits uh it was on a list of many critics top 10 films of the year 2004 and as we said uh it received the award for best picture at the 77th academy award uh, clint east was awarded for his second best director oscar for the film and the film also received a best actor in a leading role nomination for hillary swank and morgan freeman receiving best actress in a leading role and best actor in a supporting role and paul haggis was nominated for best adapted screenplay and yet for such a big film it's such a it's such a small film a uh, beautifully told yeah. film uh, beautifully realized honest and heartfelt and don't if you've not seen it don't think about this as a sports movie because if you go in expecting a female rocky then i think you're going to walk away from this film absolutely crushed hillary swank went through a serious training schedule to prepare for this movie gaining nearly 20 pounds of muscle through all the workouts she also through the training for the role contracted a bacterial infection for a blister that she developed and she almost had to be hospitalized for three weeks um, but the infection was caught in the nick of time and didn't slow down it. The film was released in December to qualify for the Academy Awards. But remarkably, the movie hadn't even begun shooting in July that same year. So it was a really swift production schedule to get it out, to get for the awards season. And from when it got announced as being part of the awards and being up for awards, up until the night of the awards, it remained in the top five of the US box office every week. That's a staggering run. It did fantastic business. It was great critical acclaim, but it was subject to some criticism. Yes. Now, I remember this at the time. So in 2005, the Disability Rights Education Fund released a statement about the film that includes the following. Perhaps the most central stereotype fueling disability prejudice is the mistaken assumption inherent in the message of this film that the quality of life of individuals with disabilities is unquestionably not worth living and without giving i know it's 
almost 20 odd years old, but I don't want to give anything away uh, as to what the ending is. But, you know, that's the story. It kind of annoys me sometimes. Films aren't a documentary. They aren't uh, always a window into into the world. They're a window into these characters. And, and this was the right ending for these characters. Yeah. I know where a writer for the Weekly Standard, Wesley J. Smith, criticised the film for the missed opportunity of having Maggie gain an education, become a teacher or an inspirational uh, speaker at events, etc. But in my opinion, that would have reduced the film to melodramatic nonsense fitting yeah. of the Hallmark Channel. It would have taken away from what the core essence of the story was. And statements like that make me glad that critics are the screenwriters. Yeah, um, Haggis' screenplay here is perhaps one of my favourite of his. He just delivered a fantastic screenplay. It's great also watching this this week. I've forgotten how many people were in the Starlight supporting cast. Jay Baruchel playing Eddie. Mike Coulter as Willie. Anthony Mackie as Shorel. Michael Pena was in there as Omar. I've forgotten Michael Pena was in this. Yeah. And all of them add personality. And they're all characters around Frankie's gym. And they all bring so much personality to the environment in which it's set, making it all feel very real. This this is a film that if you've never seen it, and we're trying our best to skirt around what actually that strong turn for the final act is, even yeah. though it's it's out there and people mostly know, but there's always someone who doesn't know. But this is a film that I urge people to check out because it's Clint Eastwood, probably at one of his finest moments directing one of his finest moments in front of the camera. And it's definitely, for me, uh, Hilary Swank's finest turn in a central role. Uh, I'm going to agree with all of that. Andy, where can we find this film if we want to see uh, Million Dollar Baby? Oh, well, this was fun to track down. And it's a good job I've still got the DVD because it's not on any service at this point in time. And if you want to buy it, most of the DVDs and Blu-rays are in short supply because it's not being reissued. This is a film that deserves to get a new reissuing. It deserves a 4K restoration. Fingers crossed there will be one. But if you shop around online, you should be able to pick up a copy of the DVD or Blu-ray. We'll be back next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. Andy, you have been to see Cocaine Bear. And I think, from what I know... You're giddy with excitement to tell the entire film file audience all about it. Do you see it? The bear. It did cocaine. Higher, baby. You don't need to hide. I'm telling you. Get higher, baby. There's nothing to be afraid of. And don't come down. A bear did cocaine. Did you feed it cocaine? I think that's a yes. Drugs, especially cocaine, are very, very bad. Loosely inspired by a true story of a bear who, after a drug smuggler dumped a load of cocaine from the skies above the wilderness of Tennessee, was found dead having overdosed on the cocaine that it devoured. But hey, that's not much of a story really. So instead, Elizabeth Banks opts to embellish the events as the coked up bear goes on a rampage of destruction in its quest for more powder. Caught up in the path of the bear are middle schoolers Dee Dee and Henry, Dee Dee's mother, Ranger Liz, wildlife activist Peter, a fixer and his partner David and Eddie who are sent to recover the drugs, local detective Bob and a gang of delinquents. Hugh, body parts, brutal splatter and attempts at laughs. Attempts is the operative word there as despite the film trying really, really hard to infuse humour, both light and dark throughout, not once did I actually find any of it funny. By 10 minutes in, the forced attempts at comedy had fallen flat at every turn and already made it clear to me that I was in for a bumpy ride with this one. How bumpy? 
I couldn't have predicted, as this swiftly became the longest 95 minutes film that I've sat through in quite some time. As the film tried its hardest to win me back, with over-the-top bloody attacks and B-movie-style characters all thrown into the mix, I became aware that I was checking my watch more than usual, six times over the course of such a short film. Each time, I felt dismayed at how much longer I had ahead of me. The cast are all quite bland, even despite the names involved. They're playing naught but caricatures without any reason to actually care for any of them. They are all there simply to give the bear something to play with. The kids, Dee Dee and Henry, are irritating from the offset, poorly written by Jimmy Warden, who I can only assume was never a child himself. And it was extremely disappointing to see Christian Convery, who was so marvellous in Sweet Tooth, being so utterly terrible here. Then you get to the bear itself, a CGI creation that, on the still images, looks detailed and well-rendered. But somewhere along the way in the animation, something clearly went wrong, as it looks jittery. It's almost like it's animated at a lower frame rate than the rest of the film. And aside from one or two moments, it fails to fit into the scenes, resulting in breaking me out of the film entirely. Does it have a coked up bear killing people in a bloody way? Yes. If that's all you're after, then maybe, just maybe, you'll get something here. But for me, this was a chore of a film that lacked the knowing fun of the Sharknado films and has made it three strikes and you're out for Elizabeth Banks as a director for me. After Pitch Perfect 2 and Charlie's Angels both fail to impress, this is the final straw. The only things that miss, that's missing from this, which would have cemented how bad this film was for me, was it needed to have the words A Sky Original at the beginning of it. But sadly, it's not. So I can't blame Sky for this one. What is interesting, though, is I pop my head in towards the end of a screening the other night to go in and help clean it. And it's the first time I've seen this in a long time. The audience applauded at the oh, end. Wow. You don't get that in the UK. No. Now, I did, I did talk to a few people as they were coming out because uh, I saw one of my mates. And one of them said that he started that applause off and everyone joined in, but he was doing it ironically because he didn't think it was a good film. He just ironically <laughs> clapped and everyone joined in. But the fact that people joined in showed that some people did enjoy it. I seem to be a minority because a load of people are lapping this film up. I don't know. I've heard very, very mixed results on this one. And either you go along and you buy into the ridiculousness of it or it just doesn't land for you at all. Yeah, this didn't land for me at all. And I was expecting just like Sharknado kind of fun. Didn't even deliver that. Our next film up for review is... Uh, Women Talking, which has been out for a few weeks at cinemas in the UK and is one of the ones listed for best feature at the upcoming Oscars. If we do not forgive these men, we forfeit our place in heaven. We could not endure any more violence. We were all attacked, all of us. So we must decide to do nothing. Stay and fight or leave. I will become a murderer if I stay. We are not all murderers. Not yet. An isolated religious colony has a dark, shocking secret. The women are treated as inferior to the men, and for many years they found themselves drugged with cow tranquilizer and raped, until one of the men is caught in the act, and all the identified attackers are arrested and imprisoned in a nearby city. Most of the men of the colony go to oversee the bail and give the women an ultimatum. When they return, they must forgive their abusers or will be banished into exile from the colony and from God. Whilst the men are away, the women hold counsel to decide whether to stay and do nothing, stay and fight or leave the colony. I didn't know what to expect going into this. Could a film with such a dark subject matter that relies solely on dialogue hold the attention for the 104 minutes of runtime? 
However, within the first five minutes, I was hooked and I found myself drawn into the very crafted dialogue, the exquisite performances and the dark, sometimes shockingly dark, story that we are told rather than shown. As the women discuss and debate their plight, we're given an insight into all their viewpoints and each approach is given chance to fully explain the reasonings. Watching the debates play out, we know that the decision they should make is to leave, but the film does a marvellous job of explaining why some of the women would rather stay and do nothing. Their religious mindset is a key factor for most, but for some, it's simply because that has always been the way, which showcases the horrific aspect of our own society's injustices. The message of this film is a powerful one, and it utilises an almost allegorical manner to shine a spotlight on rights and inequalities in our modern world. Some of the dialogue touches upon how dark the lives of all the females in the colony is, and the inclusion of a transgender character who doesn't speak adds additional weight to the film, resulting in one of the most powerful and moving films of recent years, with a cast who all excel and never, ever try to steal away a scene from each other. And it's all held together by the very skilled direction from Sarah Polly. This is a must-see film. I, th- I think Sarah Polly has become a fantastic director. I always yes. l- liked her work, uh, especially with Atomegion, but I, I think she's become a phenomenal director in her own right. Um, I've got a film to review. Uh, it landed on Netflix this week, even though it's not as straight to Netflix as it came out in the States uh, late last year, and that's Nocebo. Hi. Hello, Christine. Sorry, do we know each other? I'm here to help you. You sent for me. God. That's quite something to forget. Nice to meet you, Diana. Hello, Bubs. Only my friends call me Bobs. Straight to work, eh? You okay? I make it go away. This is a folk remedy, right? Feels like fog has lifted. It's not forever. I'm so happy. I will be with you, always. Sometimes you can get led astray. I need you to trust me. My meds are gone. She's controlling you. I'm not the one who needs to control. A fashion designer is suffering from a mysterious illness that puzzles her doctors and frustrates her husband until help arrives in the form of a Filipino carer who uses traditional folk healing to reveal a horrifying truth. This is one of those Irish films. uh, It looks like it's set in, in Belfast to kind of give the impression that it's London. It's found money from the Irish film board. Uh, money from the Philippines, and there's actually scenes that uh, that happen in in the Philippines. So it's one of those massive co-productions. It's got a good cast: the great Eva Green, Mark Strong, who is always one of those actors who just turns in a solid performance, no matter what kind of trash. Sorry, film. He's in. <laughs> he has been in some trash, but but this is one of those films that. You kind of guess where it's going. There's enough hints in it. You're not quite sure when the horror is going to start. And it's one of those horror films that is a slight kind of horror. This is a revenge flick using horror and supernatural elements to it. But no huge mind-blowing twists in it. The plot is 
very straightforward and fairly easy to predict. Eva Green is is good. Mark Strong is better. How they ended up in this film, I have no idea. It was one of those films that was recommended to me, so I expected probably an awful lot more. But it just turns out it was mediocre. It's not bad. It's not terrible. It's got some good shocks in it, a few minor scares. But what I did like about it is that it's got uh, political undertones about basically modern sweatshops and modern slaveries. And that gives it an extra element that made me think this stands out a little bit more from these low-budget Irish-based horror films. In the same way that his house had something to say about modern England, this has got that quality to it. But generally, other than that, it's just kind of a a make-do horror film. If you're bored and you're trolling through Netflix, don't know what to put on, give it a go. You might enjoy it more than I did. If instead you're browsing through Netflix and want something a little lighter that has a few uh, squeamish moments, but it's a nice family-friendly ghost story, why not check out We Have a Ghost? We have a ghost. Okay. No, I'm serious, Kevin. Caught him on camera. Oh, we got some more. No, 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 no. The entire world is captivated with Ernest. Three million views in six minutes. That's money. Our whole street's kind of bad thanks to you guys. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Not funny. I'm Kevin. Oh, that's so trippy. Can you talk? What happened to you? You don't remember? <laughs> Mystery. A year after the previous owners fled in terror from a large and old-looking house... A new family, the Presleys, snap up the property at bargain price. However, the low price appears to be due to a strange presence in the building, which on the first night of their stay tries to scare off the youngest of the family, Kevin. However, Kevin finds the attempts to be scared amusing, recording the ghost on his phone and uploading it online. When Kevin manages to coax the spirit to show himself again, he discovers that the ghost has no memory of who he was before he passed, and the only link he has is the name on his bowling shirt, Ernest. Uploading more videos online, the whole family discover that having your own ghost can make you an internet success, and the popularity may be a way to find out who Ernest actually is, as the world develops ghost fever. However, not everyone is out to help, and a government agency poses a risk to Ernest's presence in this world. We Have a Ghost comes from director Christopher Landon, who, via films such as Happy Death Day and Freaky, has showcased an approach of tapping into old cliches and tropes, sprinkling a fresh and somewhat comical approach to the ideas. Here, however, he gives a more family-friendly approach, with only a couple of moments that may be a tad much for the most sensitive of younger viewers, but no more so than films of the 80s such as Poltergeist and Gremlins. With a vibe similar to Harry and the Hendersons, this is another tap into the 80s nostalgia from London and overall works out well, even if it does feel like it could have been trimmed down a bit. The cast are great. Anthony Mackie as Frank, the father, who sees a money-making opportunity of having a ghost, is having some fun throughout. And a solid mix of supporting, including an always pleasing appearance by Tig Notaro as Dr. Leslie Monroe, who headed up a paranormal investigation department for the CIA in the past. Erica Ash as the mother Melanie is sidelined a bit too much, making very little impact on events. And Jennifer Coolidge playing a psychic Judy Romano may be a fun addition, but you could have removed her scenes entirely without actually changing any of the rest of the film. In fact, it probably would have tightened the pace up a bit more. But this is David Harbour and Jahi Winston's film as Ernest the Ghost and Kevin, whose building friendship is the core heart of the tale. 
Harbour gives a magnificent energy to the role, making it impossible not to fall in love with Ernest in the same way that the public in the film seemingly do. The mystery of who Ernest is plays out well. There's some fun laughs and excitement scattered throughout, enough to let you forgive the sometimes plodding pacing. And whilst I can't envisage me returning to the film at any point for a revisit, it didn't feel at all like wasted viewing. It's another decent nostalgia trip from London. I wasn't inspired, but you've, you've sold it more than anything else has. So, Andy, what can audiences expect over the next week? So, at cinemas, there's uh, Close, which is one of the foreign language films nominated for Oscars. But the big film this week at cinemas is, of course, Creed 3. Directed by star Michael B. Jordan. This is top of my list, and I will be talking about it next week because I am going to be watching this for my birthday. Now, TV and Sky. The new series on Sky Atlantic, loosely based on the 1966 Western, Django lands this week. Yeah, I noticed that. Might give it a go. Uh, Elvis, for those who haven't seen it, lands on Now TV and Sky Movies this week. Over on Netflix, I reviewed this last year, Fall, which is the tense yet simple film about a pair of climbers stuck at the top of a radio tower. Well worth checking out. And Chris Rock, Selective Outrage, his latest stand-up comedy special, which is sure to make some comment on that moment from last year's Oscars. Over on Amazon, Daisy Jones and the Six, which is a TV series based around a fictional band of the 70s that was heavily inspired by Fleetwood Mac. And it looks like it could be quite interesting for those of us who love our music of the 70s and our rock biopics. And the 2016 Magnificent Seven I've listed down for Amazon this week because it's a joy of a film. Whereas over on Disney+, Plus, Empire of Light lands this week. And of course, by the time this show airs, Mandalorian Season 3 will land. Yep, looking forward to that. I've still got to get round to Picard as well, season three. And I'm guessing, well, that's it for this week. But before we go, and of course, we do this every week, and it's our neat things. Stuff that we've enjoyed, stuff that we either read, uh, watched, played, had it as takeout. We don't mind as long as we think it's a neat thing and we want to share it with you. Andy, your neat thing for this week is... My neat thing for this week... And I've mentioned it when it was starting. I pointed people in the direction of it. But Clarkson's Farm, I have now finished watching all of season two. And this is a show that I wasn't sure when it was fir- when season one was starting, whether or not I'd take to it. Because, you know, Jeremy Clarkson bumbling around trying to run a farm. It's his own farm that he used to have someone else running. But when that person stepped away from it, he decided, I'm going to give it a go. And they filmed his exploits over the past two years. And whilst it's still got some of that Jeremy Clarkson bumbling around and making a bodge job of it, this is actually a farm that he owns, so he can't make too much of a bodge job of it. And he really is trying to make it a success. Not only does it give you some insight into the farming world, albeit humorously, it also completely delves into the neighbouring farms, the community, and what farming is like these days for them. And on this season in particular, it's highlighted the problems that farmers have with local councils when they want to try to develop things on their own land. You'll have seen it all over the papers, how he's been trying to open his own restaurant on his farm, how there's been all the like controversy over the developments he wants to make around his shop, etc. When you see it all in context in here and you discover that not only was he trying to make money for himself with the restaurant that he wants to open, but he'd worked with all the other farmers to make sure that all the products that were going to be used there were locally sourced and help out the other farmers who are finding it difficult to sell so much of their livestock or vegetables, etc. It was going to be income revenue for the whole community. 
and the council have opposed them at every step of the way. It's eye-opening. It's interesting. Yes, it's funny. Yes, Clarkson sometimes becomes full-on Clarkson, but most of the time he's reined in. And the true stars of this are his farmhand, Caleb Cooper, who's an absolute legend. Gerald Cooper, who we can't understand a word that he says. Charlie, who's uh, the advisor and his legal man. And also, like, obviously, his wife, Lisa. And it's just such compelling and easy to watch entertainment whilst being educational and almost documentary-like at the same time. I can't recommend this enough, even if you're not a fan of Clarkson. I've introduced other other people who never liked him on Top Gear, never liked him on the Grand Tour, absolutely despise his writing for The Sun, because of course you do, it's The Sun. Um, <laughs> but they have said that this has kind of changed their opinion of what he actually is as a person, and they can actually see what he's trying to do in a genuinely positive way. Clarkson's Farm has had 16 episodes in total. They're an easy watch. I point everyone in the direction of giving it a shot. Well, something you mentioned on your neat thing has now become my neat thing. You recommended it. It's on Apple Plus TV and it is shrinking. Created by Bill Lawrence, uh, Jason Siegel, who also stars, and Brett Goldstein, who produced the sublime Ted Lasso. This is a story of a grieving therapist who starts to break the rules by telling his clients exactly what he thinks that they should do rather than just offer them therapy. Jason Siegel plays the character of Jimmy, who lost his wife and wants to try a new approach to his loss, but he's unclear how he can reach out and help others. And this series is an absolute joy. Even for a story that's fueled by basically about grief, it kind of gets the balance right between laugh-out-loud comedy and much more deeper, serious tones. Uh, it can be melancholic and the same stretch it can be super hopeful it can be dark and then it can be absurd and it, it just proves that harrison ford can basically work in any genre because he works in tv sitcom comedy so so well um it's not got quite the charm of ted lasso but but what has but for something that um thanks down to andy i don't think i would have watched otherwise this has been an absolute joy and that's shrinking and you can find it on apple tv plus shrinking is filling that gap before ted lasso lands back with us in a few weeks time isn't it yeah can't wait for that of course we we love ted lasso that that was the show that i again couldn't imagine that i would ever enjoy because i thought it was going to be about football i thought i got it all mapped out of what kind of a show it would be and you know what it, it just fills me with joy and that's it for this week, folks. And we'll be back again. Of course we will next week with another film file. Andy, any big plans for the week? Well, my big plan this week is I turn 50 on Thursday. Oh, my goodness. I'd completely forgotten. It's the oh, big what are we doing? Well, I'm working. Oh. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a week and a half off after Thursday. So I'm using the Thursday while the wife and the kids are at, like, at work and at school, college, university. Rather than sit around the house on my birthday doing nothing, I'm going to head into work, finish up some last-minute things before I have my week off. But I am watching Creed 3 at the start of my shift, so that's my birthday treat. Um, but for a show, over the next month, to celebrate me turning 50, all of our deep dives for the next four weeks are going to be from 1973. Well, we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago and yeah. suddenly realised what a hell of a year 
1973 was for releases. So narrowing down four films from that year was was tricky. Proved to be difficult. But we think we picked out some firm favourites, not just for us, but ones that ones that people love out there as well. Well, happy birthday in ad, in advance, Jim. Hope you have a great day. And uh, if you want to get together uh, and do something, I'm gladly up for it. Maybe we should go out and have dinner or something like that. That sounds beautiful. <laughs> because the magic of risking everything for a dream, Andy, that nobody sees but you. Okay. Let, uh, us, let us rock. Hello, kitty. Meow. <laughs> are, you, are you acting as an interpreter? Yeah. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> You're like a Bond villain sat there with a cat on your lap. <laughs> we meet again, Mr. Bond. It's just film geeks talking about film, innit? <laughs> I'm weaning myself off the Arnie. <laughs> and what kind of a show do we have for you this week? Well, a sex show. <laughs> <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> it's a very different show in your head than there is in mine. <laughs> My, my vest is staying on. You can uh, leave your hat on. <laughs> We've got a deep dive into Clint Eastwood's Billion Dollar Baby. Not Million Dollar Baby. Million. That's, that's uh, force of habit. Uh, that's inflation for you. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm well and truly involved with this. Uh, well, I'd love to be involved with it, but um, unfortunately, they won't let me on set. I've got a restraining order <laughs> against me. <laughs> If I could do a maniacal laugh there, I would, but but I can't. So we'll just carry <laughs> on. Oh, well done. Well done. Ill-tempered, crotchety old, co- crotchety old boxing coach. Who <laughs> really looks... Go say something else then. Yeah. <laughs> deep, deep dive. We're going to bring you a deep dive. I'll tell you what we will bring on a deep dive one day. We're going to do Alfie. Yeah, we should actually, yeah. We can cover Alfie and we can also cover the, re- the the modern day remake with Jude Law because Michael Caine thinks Jude Law is the best version of him that there's ever been. I doubt <laughs> you ever stop thinking that that is the truth. <laughs> and now it's time for the reviews. <laughs> <laughs>